70 to 80% of your reduction in scores from bogey and higher avoidance, not from making more birdies. A tour player does make a couple more birdies per round than the 79 shooter. But again, it's not like it's six more birdies. It's just, it's just a couple. And welcome back to another Par Train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. Thank you guys for hopping aboard the Par Train. In case you're new, our mission on the Par Train is to help frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again on and off the course. And we believe if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. We feature interviews from PJ Tour pros, best-selling authors, CEOs, mental coaches, and many more to make the hardest game in the world feel easy and give you the tools to enjoy the ride. This week we had Scott Fawcett, uh, founder of Decade Golf, on the show. Before we get to that, quick word from our friends at Roback. Father's Day is next week. This is coming out on the Sunday before Father's Day. And guys, I know what it's like to try and shop for dad, especially if he's a golfer. It seems like he's got everything he needs. He's very particular about what he wants. And it's hard to get dad a good gift these days. Well, Look no further. Roback is the best apparel company in the golf industry. It's all I wear now. And dad needs a bit of an upgrade. Okay. Those bacony collars, those old polos. Um, it's, it's time to upgrade. And Roback not only looks good, every piece of clothing has four way stretch, moisture wicking tech, and stay crisp after every wash. So get your dad something he's going to love. We have so many dads reaching out to us, thanking us for helping them get 15% off their first order at Roback. And um, the hoodies, it's the most comfortable hoodie I've ever worn, stretch performance hoodies. Um, They just relaunched last week. They sell out quick, so you're gonna have to check this link to make sure they're still there. That's another great gift for dad. So go to the show notes of this episode and click the link to get 15% off your first order at roback.com. Or if you, for some reason, can't find the link in the show notes, always go to our social accounts at The Par Train, Instagram, Twitter, all of them, we're all there. And uh, it'll always be linked in our bio. So get dad something that he will love. Okay, so going on to this episode with Scott Fawcett, this guy has three math degrees, okay? He coaches over 50 tour pros, over 1,000 NCAA players, over 500 instructors. He created what's called Decade Golf. Um, Some of you may have heard of it, Um, but essentially what it is is he's figured out a way to quantify course management. And so he gives guys uh, this system, like Will Zalatoris. Um, He was working with Will Zalatoris since he's an amateur, and now look how he's playing. I mean, they actually have a way to quantify hitting certain clubs into certain spots and basically give you the formula to how to play a golf course the best way possible to score. It was actually really interesting. Course management's a big part of the mental game that we've talked about, but this was a really unique approach to quantify and apply data to it um, at the same time. And so if you've ever wondered if you should lay up or go for it, um, we go into that. And so make sure you listen to the end. Uh, this was an amazing episode. We actually, for context, recorded this on the same day that we interviewed Tim Mickelson, um, our first time ever doing two interviews in one day. So um, Matt and I had to prep a little extra to uh, have the research necessary to perform two really good interviews for you guys. So definitely listen to the end. This should really help your game. And um, yeah, all the info is at the end if you want to check out Scott and all of his work at Decade Golf. Thank you, as always, for listening. Um, follow us at The Par Train, Instagram, Twitter. Give us a subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And um, look out for some new stuff. We're, uh, we're thinking about making some towels and ball markers and different things based on your guys' requests. So keep them coming. Thanks so much. And no matter how you hit it, enjoy the ride. I got to tell you, Scott, before we dig into everything decade golf, you know, Matt and I usually try and do a good job of putting in a lot of research before we have a guest on. And I will say of 137 plus episodes that we've done, I may have spent the most time digging in to you. It didn't really feel like research either. 
It was literally that your findings <laughs> and your stuff sucked me in so much that my golf nerd inside me was just geeking out like crazy and I couldn't stop. So that's a <laughs> testament to your work and we're excited to have you. Well, I certainly appreciate that. It's been, uh, it's, it's been a total accident creating all of this and getting involved in golf in, in this fashion teaching and stuff. So it really, uh, I can appreciate that it's it's interesting. And again, I, I do feel like the reason I teach what I teach well is because I was so bad at it whenever I was playing professionally. So it uh, <laughs> typically resonates with people because most of us are lunatics. So <laughs> totally, it's easy to dig into. So Scott, I thought a fun place to start, ironically, on the par train was to be to talk about a simple concept that you've said many times, which is stop trying to make birdies. I want I want us to start there. I want to get your thoughts there. You know, it's it's so hard to not try to birdie every hole or to not at least be thinking along those lines, especially the better and better that you get. But really, this game is is nothing more than mistake avoidance. It's the the birdies are, I mean, simply variants in my opinion. Otherwise, there would be a lot more of them. And you know, that it flies in the face. There's there's a few things like Mark Brody is the godfather of the modern golf stats. He is way smarter and way better at math than me. But I definitely let my golf uh, experience, IQ, whatever it is, maybe see things a little bit differently sometimes because we were at lunch one time and David Ogren asked us if there's anything that we disagree on. And, and Mark kind of said that he thinks that I focus a little bit too much on bogey avoidance and that the best players make more birdies on tour, which is correct. But I would just add a comma because they can. And mm-hmm. it's not that they're trying to make more birdies. It's just that's the the outcome of being better at golf, having a tighter shot pattern, being a little bit better at putting, being a little bit longer because the vast majority of the extra birdies come on par fives or by getting just an extra 20 or 30 yards closer on the mid-range par fours to get you know, a lob wedge in instead of, uh, a, you know, a gap wedge or something like that. It, it really is. It's just hard to go out and intentionally make birdies on any holes other than the ones that you kind of look to birdie again, the par fives and the shorter par fours, the rest of it's just, again, I hate, I hate saying the word luck, even though I use it on a daily basis, but it is essentially luck. Um, mm. Any any given birdie that you make, that specific birdie was luck. How many you make for the course of a round is definitely a, a an indication of your skill level, though. And Scott, I mean, you've said before that the golfer that shoots seventy nine on average only makes one more birdie than the golfer that shoots ninety five on average. Which I think I'm hoping this conversation, which I know it it will will wake a lot of our listeners up because I, <laughs> I think a lot of our listeners are the, you know, the mid range 15 handicap or so that's trying to, I think we might be one of the first ways that people are trying to start to improve their mental game. And so when you hear a stat like that, it's mind boggling because it's not that the 79 is making all these birdies. They're just not making big numbers. They're making much less mistakes. Well, and that's, you know, when I first figured that out, I was like, that's crazy. But then I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, you know, if a PGA Tour player averages roughly 70 and averages roughly three and a half birdies around, it's not like a 79 shooter is going to average three and a half birdies around. Like once yeah. you step back and think about it, you're like, well, yeah, again, like so much that I teach that the, the people, my, my detractors always tell me that everything I teach is common sense, which I agree it is common sense once you see it. But until you see it or hear it, it is, it is not common sense. It's not very intuitive. And I think that stat is one of the leading ones. And again, as your scoring average improves through the 70s, you know, 70 to 80% of your reduction in scores from bogey and higher avoidance, not from making more birdies. Now, again, a tour player does make a couple more birdies per round than the 79 shooter. But again, it's not like it's six more birdies. It's just, it's just a couple. And they, you know, again, it's, it really is just a sliding scale as you go from 95 and, and just learning how to play the game. 15 out of those 16 shots of improvement to getting into the seventies is from bogey avoidance. And that's where, you know, I, I had a couple of, of ladies come to a seminar one time a couple of years ago, and there were just some 60 year old ladies that said they'd never, you know, broken 80 before and they averaged about 90. And both those ladies told me that in under a week, they went out and broke 80 because they were just telling each other, okay, this is a spot, just chip it out and then let's get it on the green. And they just mm-hmm. didn't make doubles. I mean, Again, it's all relative to your skill level and your, you know, I can't just say, well, if you're a 95 shooter, go shoot 79. But 
a lot of times that 95 shooter can just avoid very, very basic mistakes. And that's, again, I, I do believe that if I came out and caddied for a 90 or 95 shooter, I would probably knock eight to 10 shots off their score like that day. And that's, you know, the whole point of the decade app and the decade mindset is to just get my brain as a, you know, relatively decent golfer into other players as quick as physically possible. And I do think that using the data and, and satellite images and just all of the you know, shot pattern data is a, is a modern and unique way of phrasing what, you know, could be called common sense. But in, again, until you see it, it, it just isn't. So, so Scott, welcome again, welcome to the show. You know, you, you've been a great player your whole life. You spent a lot of time around tour players um, and you have three math degrees. So you had all this, all this experience. Talk a little bit about that and really the journey of the data. Yeah. I mean, so my background, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm pretty good in math. Um, I didn't set off in college trying to get multiple degrees. I just from via transferring from Sam Houston State to Texas A&M, I, I had to sit out a year. I wound up then having to take the the fall of my third semester, basically 36 hours in one semester in order to graduate with an associate's degree so I could be eligible for my redshirt sophomore year at Texas A&M. So really, by the time I showed up at A&M two and a half years into college, I had already had AP credits. I'd already had two years of summer school. And then I had one semester that I basically plowed a little bit more than one year of schoolwork into, I would have like actually had to try to not <laughs> graduate. I would have had to plan my schedule accordingly. And so again, it's not like I, you know, I mean, I made decent grades at best and, you know, I just, I, I do think I've got a good math and logic brain. And so then playing professional golf and I do think importantly failing at professional golf is what allowed me to see my mistakes. I didn't have a lot of confirmation bias that you see in a lot of you know, announcing former tour players where they're like, well, this is how I did it. And like, well, that doesn't mean that it's right. I did the same thing and I didn't make it. And <clears throat> just really seeing that the game, I, it's, it's funny some of the stuff that I catch on Twitter sometimes because I'll throw out just a benign comment like every decision you make in life is math-based. Someone will take issue with that. I'm like, literally sure. crossing the street is technically a math decision. Am I going to make it 100% of the time? If the answer is anything short of no, you're probably going to wait it out. I mean, then there would be a cost-benefit analysis of, well, I've really got to get to this meeting in time. It's 99%. Let's give it a let's give it a whirl. But it still is ultimately a math-based decision. And so, what decade technically is is just again, I, I, yes, I'm good at math, but the actual math of decade is extremely basic. It is just weighted average outcome. You know, we have a range of potential outcomes in any given golf shot. We have a range of potential, ex, you know, results and expe expected values to haul out from there. Let's take a weighted average of all of it and let's just see which which target has the best, uh, you know, the optimal scoring average and then go with it. And and luckily, there's a lot of very clear patterns that emerged from the data that, that allows you to, to systematize. Again, you know, when I created this, I really did create it for my own game back in 2013 and 14. And then only because of an elbow injury did I caddy for Will Zalatoris, which I used to have to explain who Will is. Now, I think <laughs> at this point, we've all got a pretty good indication of who Will is. <clears throat> but it's funny just to, uh, to have gone back to a junior golfer like that, who was obviously great at the game, but he was ranked 3,300 in the world. It really is interesting how just making better decisions. And again, <clears throat> I was on another podcast this morning where I, I said that, you know, if seven years ago, if you'd asked me what decade was about, I would have been like, oh, it's the math based strategy. I'm a genius, blah, 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 blah. Seven years into it, I realize it really is just a different mindset. It's just, yes, I can teach you how to pick targets really quickly that are pretty much mathematically optimal. But it's the mindset that goes along with it, the discipline, the patience of not trying to force things. And, you know, Jordan Spieth last week was a perfect example of that at Colonial. <clears throat> you know, the shot that they said just coming down on 18, he needs to make birdie. These things are all obvious. But the best way to make a birdie quite often is to have a bunch of birdie putts. He, he was trying to have it coming down just right of the flag. And technically, his optimal target, given the situation, would be six or seven yards right of that flag, like literally the middle of the green, because of the rough, because of water on the left. And yes, that means that he's probably going to have to make a 15 to 30 footer, but you're going to have a bunch of 15 to 30 footers. So really, we're, that's what we're trying to do is 
<clears throat> again, it worked out well for him that there was, you know, he's still clear of second place, but you just have to, you have to get out of, I need, or I want to make a birdie or I'm, what is the cut line or what is top 10 to get right. in the next week's tour event or top 25 on the corn Ferry tour. All of that stuff is, it's irrelevant at best and totally destructive at worst. And typically it's somewhere between the two <laughs> sliding slightly closer to, uh, to destructive. Sure. You know, it's interesting, Scott. I mean, I, I grew up playing competitively. I played, uh, I played in college, uh, division one and every practice round in college, we'd build out our, you know, our strategy for that course as a team. Right. And it was all about being committed to that plan, but really what you've kind of, you've created, you've opened up this whole conversation about you, you guys may have had a really wrong, bad plan, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe, you know, you walk out of that tournament, you played well, or you, you played well, I played well in the first round. Cause I felt I was golf is about being committed and doing your plan. Could be the wrong plan, but at least you're doing what you're you got something, yeah. your, your intentions, but talk about that. Right. I know a lot of collegiate teams were working with you and I, I just find it fascinating. So I do think that a lot of the the ways that, you know, I used to make yardage books, I'm sure you did as well. I mean, the vast majority of tour players up until now, you know, you'd have all these X's don't hit it here. Check marks are okay. It's okay to miss it over here. Right. And that's really not the way to think about it because it really is relevant to where the whole location is, is to, so, so rather than, you know, the traditional playing lesson advice of you've got to miss it in the right spots the real way to look at these problems is how much do I not want to be short-sighted? So your yardage book, instead of having an X next to a spot, it should really just be ranked. Uh, you know, in, in decade, we rank a really easy spot minus two and a really hard spot three. And you're just saying if, a, you know, when you're playing your practice round, you're picturing a pin four or five yards from any edge of the green. And then you're just asking yourself the question, if the pin were there, how much do I not want to be short-sighted? And you, you just rank that somewhere between minus two and three. And now when you're out there in the fairway on the 18th hole on Sunday at Colonial and there's a lake left with it's all shaved down to it, if, if it goes left, you're, that's a spot we really don't want to miss left. So that would be three, which now, yeah, you can still override that. But if you just had an X over there, it doesn't, it doesn't really tell you much. Like, okay, well, obviously it's a lake. This one's a little bit of an extreme example. We really don't want to be there. But let's just say it was a bad bunker. And now you're out there in the fair when you're like, well, I really need to make a birdie here in order to get into a playoff. I'm going to get a little bit more aggressive. And again, you can still override something just because it says two or three, but it's just a little bit more concrete. Hey, man, this is a really bad spot to be. So don't hit it here. <laughs> and, and again, I shouldn't even say don't hit it here. Pick a target that removes this the appropriate amount because you're still going to hit it there. You're still going to hit bad shots that go far enough left or right. I, again, I really do think that that's one thing that, that, you know, launch monitors like the Foresight Quad and TrackMan really have allowed us to, to do is just show how big shot patterns are. I mean, and I say this as a twice failed playing professional, golfers are, you know, professional golfers are the worst at their sport of any professional athlete there is. Um, you know, you're just not going to have a, a guy with uh, serving in, in, in the French Open this week. Nadal's not going to accidentally serve it into the first row, but right. <laughs> you're going to find people that hit it into people's backyards every single week on tour. And that's just an indication of how hard the game is. But then it becomes paradoxical because the game is so hard. Once you start playing it correctly, it actually becomes pretty easy. And and, and as I always say, like I truly was a lunatic when I, I mean, I was the worst without doubt, the worst attitude and hothead and whatever. And it's funny because I just call people out on it now because I know in looking back at it, I was acting that way because I wanted to make sure everybody else knew I'm better than this. That's really what's going on. And once you kind of cut through the BS of that, you're like, okay, dude. I don't think you're actually that mad, but you're, but you're hurting your game as though you're that mad. Nobody else cares what you are. So stop acting. I mean, and, and anybody, you know, anybody who is, is actually does care what you shoot. They're probably hoping you shoot a million in which case they're probably not your friends. So who cares what they think anyways? <laughs> yeah. It's funny, Scott, how a lot of times, you know, people resist, mental game stuff because they think they're not quite good enough for it. And I could see them thinking the same way about decade, 
right? So I want you to, just before we dig, because I have so many things we want to dig in on, let's just start at a very high level. Average golfer, 15 handicap. How do they, what's the process? How do they use, they download the app, which I have. Um, how do they walk through the decade golf process? I mean, really, it just, it starts, uh, you know, obviously the foundations is the correct level for the vast majority of players. You know, if you're averaging in the 70s or you're on a trajectory to be averaging in the 70s really quick and you're just an impatient person, then, then you can go for elite. But really foundations is designed for everyone and it just starts off slow. I mean, it's funny because people, I get emails literally daily. All right, I bought it. Now what do I do? I'm like, start at month one and watch the content in order and you'll see it at the end of it. So I really start off by trying to prep people. We are going to, we're going to, to understand shot patterns. We're going to understand some basic expectation. I think it's extremely therapeutic to understand that eight feet on the PGA tour is where they average 50, 50. It's a coin flip from eight feet. That's not very far. Uh, the, the fact that four feet is 88% sounds shocking. Like, wow, that's not as high as I would think it is. But once you then understand that that's actually three feet, one inch to four feet, that's 88%. That's mind boggling, in my opinion. Um, basically, every inch inside of 10 feet is roughly 1% in make rate. And just understanding these basic things, 100 yards in the fairway is 2.8 shots to hole out again on the PGA Tour. Like there's just, there's just no situations, I mean, literally at all, where you're ever expecting to make a birdie unless you can get it greenside on a, a, a drivable par four or a reachable par five. But again, then that's even still a question. It's not like you're expecting to make a birdie, but you've just got a better chance. But aside from a hole, you can actually get it greenside in one shot less than regulation. There's just nowhere you can do that. So the process is get in there month one. We're going to learn about shot patterns, some, some basic expectations uh, a lot of practice habits because I do feel like there's a lot of bad information out there. Um, I shouldn't say bad information, just misapplied information where, uh, you know, some instructors have gone down this rabbit hole of, you know, randomizing your practice is going to help you take that from the range to the course more. And I, I, I firmly disagree with all of that. They've, they've misapplied science from other genres and or run terrible studies within golf. Really the key to those, those studies when they've done them in golf is just the fact of by changing your target, you're forcing the player to slow down. That's, that's what's going on. Um, and so you don't have to, you know, slowing down isn't, uh, you know, it can't only be done because you're randomizing your targets. You can slow down and, and actually pay attention when hitting the same shot to the same target over and over and over again. And it's just comical because some of those instructors teach some tour players and then I go out like at the Colonial last week and there was, a, there was a time where there were 12 guys on the driving range and every single one of them had an alignment rod down and were hitting balls in a single strip. And I'm like, everyone out here is hitting the same shot over and over and over again. <laughs> and even some of those instructors that talk about, hey, we got to change our targets up every shot. They're out there with tour players hitting the same shot over and over and over again. And, and I do think that that's one thing that the, the average player Again, back to the practice habits in, in month one, just talking about you've just got to own a shot, period. And it's, it's just comical listening to amateurs talk about, well, I'm going to draw this one or you got to fade this one or you got to do this. You got to shoot it up the right angle here, the right side here, so you can have that angle into the left pin. It's like, it's, it's honestly, I, I, there's a lot of times I think that Tiger, because he did play pretty much perfect strategic golf, there's, there had to be so many times that he was just laughing to himself. Like, what are these idiots doing? Because there were times when I was catting for Zalatoris back in 2014 in the Texas Am and us junior. And I'm listening to our opponents and the shots that they're describing to their caddies. And I'm like, what in the hell are you thinking? You, you I mean, yeah, you I, I see the shot you're talking about. Sure. You can try that, but the, the range of outcomes, again, it's like hitting on 18 and blackjack. Most people freak out when they realize, you know what, if you hit on 18, there's actually a 23% chance you're not going to bust. That's right. way higher than most. Like th there's a decent chance you're not going to bust. And there's also still a decent chance you'll lose even if you don't bust. And just understanding all of these just mathematical truths, that's where we start in month one. Then we just slowly start building in from there. The, the, the lowest hanging fruit for amateurs 
for sure, in my opinion, is shaping the driver one direction and understanding that speed is the only thing that matters in putting. So month two, we followed up with a bunch of ideas on how putting works, speed being the, the primary component. Why? I mean, again, what I focus on so much is the why of things. I can tell you a million things that are true, but if I don't explain to you why, again, I read all of the, the Rotella, the, I mean, I read all the great sports psychology books back in the day, but they didn't click with me because I just didn't understand why, or I was too young and immature, certainly probably part of it. And a lot of them I've read, gone back and read again. I'm like, oh shit, it was all right here. <laughs> um, but it wasn't, it wasn't, again, I, I, I'm saying this wrong because I respect obviously every, all those guys that came before, but just using the data and images to just prove the point um, of shot patterns and resultant expectation is, is just everything. Then obviously you start going through month three, four and on when we really start kicking into decade strategy and course management. I've got, I've got to build a basis for two months and then start teaching you what to do with it. Scott, I, I know you mentioned angles and I know from listening to you, we're, we're, the goal is not to hunt angles. Uh, but is, is there ever an exception or, and maybe that's not off the tee, but maybe that's an approach as depending on the green layout. Just curious. You just can't. Again, the, the main key with angles, it's not that they don't matter. It's that you can't hunt them profitably. Hmm. And so let's pretend a pin is on a left side. And this is, again, it's the architecture aficionados that I argue this point with. And I, I try to say, like, I've seen it's because it. <laughs> you guys do a good job of designing courses that you can't actually hunt angles because I'm, I'm trying to offer some sort of an olive branch to meet in the middle, but right. courses that you just don't have hole after hole after hole that's a hundred yards wide. And if shot patterns off the tee are over 70 yards wide, which they are even on the PGA tour, which sounds insane, but it's not, that's, that is just a, a fact of life, especially as you start hitting the ball further and further. Now imagine that there's a fairway. That's a huge fairway, 40 yards wide. And there's uh, bunkers on the left and rough on the right and the pins on the left. So we want to be towards the right. Hey, it's even the, the better place. It's rough instead of bunkers. Like there's a lot going for this. But if you try to shade your shot over to the right, you'll just put too many shots into the right rough. And typically there's going to be some trees or it's going to turn to native grass or it's going to turn into somebody's pool at some point. So you just can't keep shading it off to the right. Instead, if you think of like a Venn diagram, where you've got these overlapping circles. We can have an, a Venn diagram, a circle just centered right over the middle of the fairway that's 70 yards wide. And then we can have one that is centered maybe 10 yards right of that. So you're gonna have the vast majority of those two shot patterns are going to be overlapping. So you're still gonna accidentally get that angle that you want, except even though the left bunkers aren't good, they're typically going to be better than somebody's pool or the trees. And that's really the For key sure. that, that, you know, again, there's just, it's just not infinite land to the right. There's, there's always going to be something, especially, you know, on, on good golf courses, there's just going to be something that's, that's, that's over there that you'll eventually start running into. So it really is the width of shot patterns. And this is what's pretty fun is you take a course like Kiowa that, I mean, when I sit here and look at him, like, looks like a great golf course. And I'm not kidding every single fairway from like junk to junk is 70 yards for 18 straight holes. Yeah. So I did all of the decade math based on, you know, ex expected values. And I came up with some rules of thumb initially where it's like, think driver first, like, it, it, but it wasn't this flow chart that I've now created. But at this point I've created a flow chart where it's like, are there 65 yards between penalty hazards? Yes. Does the fairway pinch to less than 40 yards? No, then it's driver. I literally don't need to see anything else about it. And this was all based in math initially. And then ultimately after reviewing, you know, four to 500 courses around the world, uh, the, the satellite views of them, just the exact same pattern emerges every single time. So you get a place like Bethpage. It's a tree-lined New York golf course it's 65 or 70 yards between the trees or the hay every right. time. Like it's the, it's the exact same thing as Kiowa, even though aesthetically it looks totally different. The bones, the, the meat of the golf course is basically the same thing, which is why they're both great golf courses. Yeah. No, Scott, before we get into some putting, I just, I'm, I'm trying to drop a situation. I think our, our listeners can really relate to. If you've got 
if I have a 400 yard straightaway par four and I've got two big or maybe a big bunker right in the middle of the fairway there's, and there's really nothing left or right, but you've got rough and trees. So often your intuition is, well, I'm not going to aim at that bunker in the middle of the fairway. I'm going to try and work it around it or play short, but should we just be aiming at the bunker? I mean, what are the odds we're going to hit it in? Well, so your, your statement there was you've got a big bunker and this is where, this is where golf becomes difficult. If we're talking about basketball and you're like, Hey, I'm at the top of the key. You know what that looks like, right? Sure. If I'm on the 20 yard line, we're going to, you know, to, to whatever red zone offense, you know what that looks like. I got an idea of what you're talking about, but it's the fact that golf is the only sport in the world that's not played on a uniform field of competition. I mean, right. technically my answer is like, it depends, sure. but if that bunker is about 10 yards wide or less, and there's really not much else around it. Yeah. You just hit it right at it and you kind of cross your fingers. But if you do that four times, there's actually a decent chance you won't hit it in it any of those four times. And, and the, the key to, I, you know, I talk about stop trying to make birdies, winning requires luck and stop trying to make putts. Like those are my three foundational tenets that I, that I start off my, my teaching with. And it really is like sometimes winning requires luck is just, I just didn't happen to hit it in that bunker out of <laughs> four times. Like that's just convenient. I don't, yeah. if we hit it, if we did this a million times, but if you drop back to three wood, what you've done is you've made 100% of your second shots, 40, 50 yards longer mm -hmm. in order to save 10 or 15% of shots from going in that fairway bunker. So even if you hit it in that fairway bunker, one out of the four days, it's, it's, it's definitely one out of the four. It's, it's definitely probably still a, a positive gain to have hit driver off the tee. If you happen to hit it in it two out of the four days, it probably starts turning into, well, that was a negative I would just be like, well, that's kind of unlucky that you hit two perfect drives on that hole. I mean, I, I was playing in the U.S. Mid-Am qualifier about three years ago, and I was the last tee time off. So I'm, I basically know exactly what it's going to take. I'm one under on 18 tee. It's going to take two under. It's a, it's a par five that if I drop back to three wood, it's going to be three wood, three wood um, at best. Yep. But I can hit driver and maybe get a, a hybrid or a four iron in my hands. And there's a bunker that's about 10 yards wide starting at 340. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to hammer driver right at it. And I just sent it straight. Like I just hit it right at impact. I'm like, that's in it. And I just hit it right into this tiny little bunker in the middle of the fairway. It's, it's inconvenient that I did that. But if I had aimed left or right of it, they're literally, if you, if you think of like a, a, a normal distribution curve, the distribution curve of tee shots is really low and really wide. So yes, it's, it's centered over the middle, but it's not like it's a, it's a, it's a peak. I'm trying to think of like, I'm trying to think of a height. Normal distribution curve would be centered over a peak at five, nine or 10 or whatever it is, but you can kind of see what that bell curve would look like a tee shots, man. It's just low and flat. You've got about as much of a chance of hitting it straight as you do 20 yards left and 20 yards, right? So if I aim 20 yards left, there's honestly almost as much of a chance as I would put it in the bunkers aiming right at it. And that's a really, really hard thing for people to like wrap their head around. But just trust me, go practice. If you've got a, a, a foresight quad, knock yourself out. You'll start to see that you, again, it's not that you don't know where it's going, but you don't actually know where it's going. So you're hitting, it's, it's like a beehive. It's, it's a low, <laughs> flat, just instead of a swarm of bees being super tight, it's like, 10 bees deep and 20 feet wide. And just some part of that's going to intersect with the bunker. It doesn't really matter where you're aiming it technically. Sure. Well, it's okay. interesting. Since Scott. I worked in a Venn diagram and a beehive all into one golf explanation. <laughs> love it. We're really adding value for the part train community here. Gotta love it. Uh, Scott, you said a stat that blew my mind uh, in another podcast where you said tour pros that make bogey or tor torpos that hit it in the trees make bogey 80% of the time. And that average, huh? And Go that ahead. as an amateur really frees you up to say, why am I trying to thread the needle and like give myself the miracle shot I see on TV? Like even my angle out of the trees can change. Instead of trying to hit a little and trying to get 40 more yards down the fairway, what is my best angle to get it out? And in the fairway. Yeah. I mean, and, and so that's where you just, the shot you're attempting to hit 
you basically have to know you can hit 100% of the time because you will miss hit enough shots that that will be the ones that you don't, that you still make double on or don't score on. And so it's, it's hard because there's so many times you're in the trees and I'm like, I can see the shot you're talking about. Like, yeah, it's just an easy little flighted six iron. But what's funny about it is, and, and again, <laughs> it's hard enough getting people to not try to make birdie with a nine iron in their hands. Now put yourself in the trees with a pretty decent, like a decent little hallway. And you, you're walking down there, you set your bag down. You're like, oh man, I got a little hallway. I can still get a 15 foot look for birdie. Like you're not, it, it's crazy, but you're not even thinking about like, I can just make a par here. Like, hey, I've got a good chance of making a par, but you're like, I can still get a look at birdie, which is completely insane. Um, to your point about making, you know, making bogey 80% of the time, once they're in the trees and they've got something in their way, the the average score from the trees from 100 yards is 3.8 strokes to hole out. And you can go all the way out to 220 and it's 3.92. Like once you're in the trees on tour, it doesn't matter. You're basically making bogey. Just don't make double. If you're hitting it in the trees 10 times around, you probably need to work on your driver, not your recovery shots. So it really does become you know, commensurate to your ability off the tee and your scoring average, how often you should hit it in the trees and then how often you should really be, again, at the end of the day, basically making bogey from there. And that's where, again, it just it drives me crazy watching some of these college golf turns where I've got teams in there and they'll just have, you know, one of the teams, I won't name them, but they've got a couple of really good players and then a couple of players that just, just, they're good, but they just try too much. And the coach and I, before the NCAAs were talking about like, if we can just get these guys to not make doubles and triples, yeah. they got a chance. And sure enough, like in the first round, they had like three doubles and two triples that counted. And it's like, you just can't compete yeah. at that level. And, and it's something where like, if you know, when you tee it up, I typically make three quarters of a double per round. Just go out and try to not make that double. And the rest of it, it, it actually will just kind of work itself out. And, and just removing those big numbers, it's just, they're, they're, A, it makes your score lower just by doing that, but B, the downstream effect of, I just made a stupid triple, now my, my head's down, my shoulders are down, my attitude's down. It's hard to just turn that around. You know, I, I talk about meditation a ton. I talk about, you know, working on your mental game away from the course a lot, but also at the end of the day, it's not a, it's not a, 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 a a magic genie where you just meditate and you're not pissed off anymore. I mean, I, I put on Twitter just the other day, I, this last weekend, I had a, I had a bad weekend. I was just in a bad mood the entire weekend. Um, and it was not a good weekend to be in a bad mood. I had my daddy daughter dance with my kid. Like I was wanting to have a fun weekend and it just wasn't, but I also recognized I'm in a bad mood. Let's just don't make this worse. When yeah. somebody says something that pisses me off, don't snip back at them. Like think through your comments a little bit more. And that's what most players don't have the ability to do. Like just made a triple pretty mad right now. How can I just not make this worse? You know, it's it, Maverick McNeely is a player that I worked with when he was in college in his first couple of years out on tour. And, and he, we've got a mental scorecard that we track in the decade app. And, you know, he told me, we were just talking about it, you know, how he keeps his energy level up and everything one time. And he's like, you know, I, I figured out that if I've had two or three negative mental scorecard events in a two or three hole period, which just means he wasn't committed or, or something, that it's a, it's a cue to me to check, am I thirsty? Am I hungry? Like, do I need to stretch a little bit? Like, what's going on? Because that's not normal for me. And, and shockingly, it took a really smart 22-year-old kid to figure out something that I hadn't figured out by the time I got to 46. But it's just a cue like, hey, something's wrong. What, uh, what, what can we do to get back at this? So, you know, back to the trees at 3.8, like, just once you're in the trees, you're making bogey. Just don't yeah. make double. Yeah. Well, speaking of Maverick McNeely, I think it was him that asked Tiger, you know, why he's the best player ever. And he, he didn't say mm -hmm. the best iron player ever. He didn't say longest driver in his prime. He said that he's the best lag putter ever. And so I want to shift yeah, to putting for a second because he rarely three putted, right? He hits the middle of the green. He three putted right on tour average, two and a half percent of the time. I mean, okay. it, was just, it, was, it was not never three putting would not be optimal as, as odd as that sounds. Never hitting a ball in a water hazard is not optimal. You should hit it in a water hazard, you know, two-ish percent of the time, you know, at the tour level, yeah. um, you should three-putt some for sure. You know, but to, to, to finish your point with what you're, where you're going, Maverick asked Tiger, 
you know, Cohen, I've been best friends for, I mean, shoot, almost 20 years now, but I never really talked to him much about Tiger. I did some stats work for him and, you know, helped him with a few things, but I never asked like, Hey, what are y'all working on? What are y'all doing or anything like that? Because I just didn't want to put him in a weird position, but Maverick, I was like, you know, he's not under an NDA with Tiger. I'll ask him. So I asked him, I'm like, what did, you know, what did, what did you talk to Tiger about? And he's like, I asked, he said, actually, he said, it, this all makes a lot more sense to me now because I asked Tiger why he's the best player ever. And Tiger said, because I was the best lag putter ever, you know, and Maverick being a super smart, thinky Stanford kid, he was like, well, he pushed him on that. Well, like, what does that mean? He's like, you know, if I get myself in trouble, I can just kind of dump it out to the middle of the green to put it, not make many bogeys, kill the par fives and just always be in the hunt. And I'm like, huh. yeah, that's, <laughs> that's about 90% of the workload right there. And it is funny because, you know, I played in the 1999 U S open at Piners, the one that, that Payne Stewart won. Sure. And the, the, the Tuesday or Wednesday before the tournament started, I was going on to the putting green to practice right at the same time that VJ Singh was. And he was, you know, known as the, the the hardest practicer on the tour. And so me being a stupid 24 year old, I was like, I'm going to out practice you right now. You don't even know we're in a competition right now, VJ, but we are. And I literally sat there for like two and a half hours, basically doing nothing but getting tired, just rolling balls all around the green, just so I could win some stupid competition that wasn't even a competition. And in hindsight, VJ, not that he's a model of great putting, but he got away with the yips solely because he just sat there and did drills for two hours. I'm just kind of randomly rolling balls all around the green. And that's where switching it up. I'm not a drill guy. Like I just love practicing, but switching up putting specifically to speed ladder type drills, it really starts to give you a feel for different positions, how hard to hit certain things to go certain distances. And you just start to own that 20 to 40 foot lag putt range which that's really where amongst tour players it's not that big of a separator necessarily but amongst tour players to amateurs it's a huge separator i mean that's why watching pepperdine yesterday when the ncaa championship which is you know a, a team that i've worked with chris zambri who's our decade college rep is their assistant volunteer coach and he's huge on putting speed drills on putting combines and this kid had i don't know it's probably 30 or 40 feet two putt to win the national championship. And I had a lot of comfort knowing this kid wears these speed drills out and Zambri's on him. I'm just sitting here rooting for him to two putt, which technically a 40 footer. I mean, you're going to three putt that actually a lot, 10%, maybe even more 15%, shoot 20% in that scenario. And the kid rolled it up there to a foot. And I'm just like, you just can't put a price tag on how, how great being able to lag from 20 to 40 foot is because tying it back into what Tiger said, like, again, I'm not saying hitting the green is not hard. It's a hard thing to do, but it's actually not that hard to do at the tour level. Like just flaring it somewhere on the green typically isn't that challenging. Again, Harbor Town, small greens, whatever, you know, notwithstanding all of that stuff, but you find yourself in a bad spot, get it somewhere on the green and then just be a great lag putter. And again, you just, your bogey rate will just plummet which again yeah. is what drives scores lower. <laughs> well, so Scott, let's talk about speed. I mean, growing up, I mean, I, most players that were competitive were taught speed is more important than line. I think we all generally know that. And but working on... But here's a question. Do you practice yeah. your line more or your speed more? Well, and that's the defining question, right? I, 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 think, I think you hone in on line a lot more when you're actually putting, right? Are you familiar you're practicing with practicing for sure. Did you ever read Extraordinary Putting by Fred Shoemaker? No. no for, but he had this drill where, okay, do a 40 or 50 footer and put a putting green flag stick down. Put it down and putt to it. And boy, that's easy, right? It's, it's a big target and your speed's really good. But when you got to putt to that hole and make it, you're tight, you're tense, you're focused on line and outcome. So talk about how you, or, you know, again, for listeners, like really honing in and figuring out how to practice speed correctly. Well, so again, there's a, there's a several speed drills that we've got in the app, but the main one that I use, it's a ladder drill that I learned from Cameron McCormick that, that you know, Jordan Spieth used to use all the time. And it used to be a ladder drill where you're just progressively rolling a ball around the prior one by about six inches. And you just kind of keep on lagging it out further and further and further. It's a really hard one to do by yourself because the, the prior putt, eventually a bunch of balls just start getting in your way. I changed it to where you're, you're setting up these little buckets where you're trying to roll from five to 10 feet 
you, you take four ball marks and you put them down in a straight line, one foot apart, and you start at five feet from the first ball mark and you're trying to lag it in between the first and the second ball mark. So a one foot window. If you're successful, you ladder yourself backwards because then the prior putt is at least in the same zone that you're trying to lag the next one into. So you, you wind up being able to, to hit a lot more putts without having to go back and collect them all. Once you get to 10 feet, you start trying to lag it between the first and the third ball mark, which is a two foot window. Ladder yourself backwards on each successful attempt until you get to 20 feet. Then you're trying to lag it between the first and the third. And you do that all the way back to 30 feet. And you'll just be amazed at how quickly that three foot window will look like a trough from 30 feet. And you can then, once you get good at that, you can stretch that all the way out to 40 feet into the same three foot window. And if all of a sudden you're rolling 70 or 80% of your putts from 30 to 40 feet into a three foot window, it's going to be pretty hard to three putt very often. And that really is the, yeah. the key. And it's, it's so funny because like, I agree with you that, well, I, I don't actually, because it, that nobody told me that G growing up that speed is, I mean, people said work on your speed but they never just screamed at me. Speed is the most important thing. And, and the reason that speed is the most important thing is picture a, a putt from 15 feet. That's breaking two cups from the right. So just a decent, normal break from 15 feet. If you hit that putt soft, it's going to start breaking sooner. If you hit that putt hard, it's going to start breaking later. So really even given the identical read and the identical start line, the width of your shot pattern is dictated more by your speed than your start line or your read. And it's, it's kind of a, man, it's really hard to wrap your head around that, but just go out and practice it. I mean, right. literally the, the, the eyeline golf makes a, a, something called the sweet roll. That's only like 70 bucks and allows you to roll putts, uh, you know, at any given speeds, just go roll putts around at different speeds on breaking putts. And then once you take that and then you factor in, even on a, on a straight-ish five-foot putt, if you don't have speed that's going to put the putt somewhere between six inches and, and 18 inches past the hole, you, you, know, you don't want to be leaving any short from five to 10 feet, but you also don't want to be hitting them much more than about two feet by. You start making the hole really, really small. And you know that's where, again, back to the NCAA championships, I can't tell you how many times the announcers yesterday and you saw the kids well, his opponent's already in with four, so the next one's good. So, you know, take a little break out of this one and hammer it in. It's like, that's just, right. why does taking a little break out of it make your read any better? You still have to have the right read. I mean, yeah. it, it actually doesn't make sense if you think about it. Putting a read on it just outside the hole is just as inaccurate as a read just inside the hole if it does, in fact, break more than that. Like, you can't just jam a breaking putt and make it go straight. Right. So you still have to put the correct read for that speed on it. All you've done is made the hole a lot smaller. That's it. And, it, and again, I really think that, that understanding that is, is like a, a, a transformative moment of understanding why, yes, speed is the most important thing. And it's funny because if you like, who are the best putters in the history of the game? Fax and Crenshaw, Nicholas, Tiger, who's got the best speed in the history of the game? Well, Fax and Crenshaw, Nicholas <laughs> Tiger, like there's nice. something there hitting your line. Just it's, it's, it's kind of commensurate to your handicap. It's just not that hard to have. If you're a 10 handicap to have the line you should on your putts that a 10 handicap should, if you're a tour player, it's not that hard to have, you know, that, that line on your putts. Scott, talk, I want to ask you about the mental side of putting in the sense, you know, having a par, par putt, compared to having a birdie putt is a different feeling in your head. And oftentimes if, if, if a great, a good tour player can't become a great tour player or a mini tour player, it's because maybe they're just not making enough birdies, for example, but they're giving themselves a chance, but it goes for amateurs too. When you have a par putt versus a birdie, I can make the par, but I can't make the, how, how do you wrestle with all that? How do you train to keep your mind centered? Well, again, that's where back to meditation and back to everything and just getting out of outcome. I mean, again, They've, they've pretty well disproven. They, they initially thought that tour players make more putts for par than they do for birdie, but they've pretty well disproven that it's material because that, that same putt for par typically has a little bit more information. So your read's going to be a little bit better. You've, you've typically hit a chip shot or you've, you've seen mm -hmm. something closer to the hole. Uh, so you've got a little bit more information on par putts than birdie putts typically. So that really explains away the majority of it. But I, I do know what you're saying. Like there is a feeling of, you know, this, 
this, uh, what is it, mistake avoidance, not mistake avoidance, but it's just a, a loss fallacy of some sort where you're, you know, you, you losing money is much more painful than winning money is good. And so, but so much, again, so much of what I talk about is just getting out of score. I mean, it's at best mm. not damaging and it's at worst, you know, going to make you totally implode. It, it doesn't, people try to apply game theory, which is where you're taking the situation into account far too often in golf. And since golf, again, back to it being a very unique sport, it's the only sport in the world that's not played with a shared ball. You don't play defense. There's not even a mutual clock. Everybody's game ends at a different time, typically, right. unless you're in match play. And even if you're in match play, until the guy gets it in the hole, you actually don't even have that good of an idea of what they're going to make. Yeah. I mean, even if the guy's got eight feet for par, like I, he might make par, but there's a really good chance he's going to still make bogey. Like it's just all irrelevant information and it's just you know at the end of the day it's just exhausting and that's you know there was a quote from Stuart Sink uh you know he bought my app just out of the app store two weeks before he won in Napa um last year's you know his first win in 11 years on tour was the week after he bought the decade app and he's obviously won again since yep but he was on PGA Tour radio the uh the week after his second win and they asked him about decade and and what all he's doing and and what he said is like on the course, the system makes the decisions for us. It takes the mental energy that would be required to deliberate and make a decision. And it makes the decision for us. It keeps me fresh. And that's, you know, yeah. not that what you're talking about is a, a decade principle, but keeping your brain fresh and your body energized is just everything. So everything I try to do is get players to just not ruminate over the cut line, what this putt is for. It's that's just all irrelevant information technically. So Scott, I want to, before we end today, I, I definitely want to talk about Will Zalatoris. He's one of my favorite players. I think there's a lot to dig in in there, but before we do, I want to touch on par fives for a second, because we haven't really dug into that much. And I know that that's one of the biggest things that amateurs need to eliminate is making a bogey on a par five. And I've noticed in my own game over the years, you know, I have no problem with distance. I hit it pretty long. My problem, just like a lot of people with the driver is dispersion, big misses both ways. Right. And so um, I actually have made a lot of big numbers on par fives because I, in my mind, I think I made the mistake that I need to amp up. This is my time to, to really strike when I can just treat it like every other hole and put myself in the best position and try and get up near the green where it makes sense and try and give myself a shot at birdie. But I guess you spoke earlier about the power of why. Why is it that bogeys on the par fives are such a, a detriment thing for us? Well, just because you shouldn't make many. I mean, <laughs> really, <laughs> they are your few scoring opportunities. You just you just don't have many chances to get it up and around the green in less than regulation. I mean, sure. and, and par fives are a pretty consistent one that you can try to. And it's funny because like, you know, when, when you say amped up, I assume you mean you're going to try to hit one harder or something. Yeah. And I, I do believe that, that when they talk about like the tour player has an extra gear or something like that, I think that for the vast majority, like that's, it's not true. I mean, you will every once in a while see DJ uh, take a, a little, what looks like a little bit of an extra rip at it, but it will be on a carefully selected hole where there's not really any trouble. And the only reason he's going to do that is because it's a par four where he can actually get it up and around the green chipping. He might do it on a par five where you know, if I just hit my normal drive, I'm going to then hit a three when I'm going to come up 25 yards short. He might do it there, but I think that one of the biggest fallacies is when you hear guys like Nicholas specifically, you say like, I'm swinging at 80%. That's not true. There is, because when I hear someone say like, if I was driving my, if my car can go 200 and I'm driving it at 80%, I'm going 160. I can go 200. There's no chance Jack Nicholas could have increased his speed from 80% to 100%. Let's just pretend he was swinging at 120, which I probably think is probably a pretty accurate guesstimate of what he was. He might have had 123 or four in the tank, maybe, but he just didn't have 130. 
the guy that has 130, he doesn't just have 138. And the guy that has 110 doesn't have 120. Well, some of them do. They're, they're finally figuring out I shouldn't be trying to bunt it. Um, yeah. But for the most part, you just need to have your stock, especially with the driver, you need to have your stock swing that it, it should be about your max club head speed. Now, it might not feel like you're swinging as hard as you can at it. So I can feel like I'm gonna, I can swing a lot harder than I do at it, but the club's not actually going to go any faster. And I feel like that's where guys, especially the older guys, the Nicholas, that generation where they said, you know, we're, we're swinging at 80 or 90%. I, I just, I don't think that's, I don't think that's accurate because again, like even you, you can probably swing it harder, but it won't go faster. Yeah. And that's really the only thing that matters is, is faster. So then for not trying, making sure you don't make a mistake on a hole that is, you know, is our best opportunity to, to score. Would you then recommend if I have a greater percentage or dispersion to go into the trees, you know, or a hazard with driver, am I better off playing three wood and adding yardage in my second shot? To not you bring think you in get your three wood any straighter than driver. Yeah, you do. Yeah, have you actually checked that? Oh, yeah, it's pretty clear. Yeah, well, I mean, you might be again. Like I say, this is a joke in my seminar all the time, but like Henrik Stenson has a swing flaw. He actually does hit his three wood better yeah. than his driver. Now Henrik is a lot better at golf than I am, so I say that <laughs> it with extraordinarily tongue in cheek. There, it is. It is rare. Most people, and they're like, no, I do most people, if you actually get them on a launch monitor, it's not material. It will go straighter because it goes shorter, but it doesn't actually go straighter um, in, in degrees offline. So you might be Henrik Stenson. Um, you might actually, that might be true, but then I would say you probably need to stick, you need to get a more go-to shot with your driver. Do you try yeah. to work the driver both ways? No, no, I'm, I'm okay. just trying to hit it straighter. Do you put shape on it though? Yeah, it's got a little bit of a draw. Um, obviously, I'd love to be able to hit a cut with it because it's more controllable. But um, I don't think that's necessarily true. That's all. Okay. The, the, how, how old are you? You look like you're mid 20s ish. 33? Yeah. Uh, you've aged well on this, yeah. uh, this <laughs> webinar. <laughs> Guys like Zalatoris, I mean, he's tall and skinny, obviously. He, when he was in high school and college, played like this kind of stuck, slingy draw just because of the way his body operated. Mm -hmm. And now as he's gotten older and stronger, most importantly, and his body has, I don't want to say his body slowed down, but it's just his dynamics are different. Now he's able to play a fade. It, it takes, it takes a lot of strength to be able to play a fade because you've got to get that club coming from a different zone than just, just again, I feel like every time I open my mouth about instruction, I'm going to get roasted. But <laughs> if you're not as strong and you're just slinging your body at it, that thing's going to be coming from the inside for the most part. And you're probably going to be hitting a stuck slingy draw. Um, that doesn't, that's not, you know, a lot of people then try to hit a fade by simply holding on. Right. That's not how you hit a fade. You hit a fade by having that path going left and then having the face right of the path. Um, but for the most part, I mean, it sounds like you might be an anomaly, but for the most part, everybody, there, there's, there needs to be a reason. And that reason typically is there's less than 65 yards between penalty hazards. Again, otherwise you're just making all of your second shots 40 yards longer. I mean, how far yeah. is your, the difference in your three wooden driver? I assume it's 40 or 50 yards. It's honestly, it's probably about 30, 30 yards. Yeah. 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 Then you're definitely a guy that hits down on the three wood and, yeah. and probably still hits down on driver. So, you know, that, that is possible. I mean, it's definitely yeah. possible. It's, it's not typical. Yeah. So, so, so Scott, as, oh, as go we, ahead, sir. You finish it out. Well, I'm just saying we're, yeah, we're kind of wrapping up here, Scott. So decades really burst onto this, the scene in more ways than one. And you've had some great success with your program what is next year? What is this year? What does next year look like? What, what are some of your goals and what you're doing to impact the game? You know, it's, it's just, it's been fun because, you know, I, I played professionally from 96 through 01. I started an electricity company in 2002, which I still own and run to this day. Like that's my technical job. Obviously I'm trying to get uh, more into golf being my full-time job. And, you know, a, about two years ago, I was when I realized that we've got a lot of people that shoot in the mid 80s that buy the app and mm. it wasn't appropriate for them at the time. But I was like, well, it can't make them worse at golf. I mean, and we got nothing but positive feedback, but it finally dawned on me. I need to make a version of this for them exclusively. 
And that's what the foundation's version is. And so really over the last, you know, 18 months, it's just, I mean, we've literally never spent a single cent on advertising. My social media is the only technically marketing we do. I mean, we technically have no idea where any sales come from on a daily basis, but now with, with foundations and then the pandemic making the golf boom, I mean, it's just been, it's been pretty crazy. It was all, you know, set up to burst. And then you get Zalatoris doing what he's done. And then you get Stuart Stink winning. And then you get Sam Burns winning, who's a player I worked with. And he was a junior and in college in his first few years professionally. Again, people ask me like, who do I work with? I don't work with Sam, but I'm not supposed to work with you for your entire career. I, I, I'm not like a swing instructor that we're going to constantly be tweaking. Like what I teach a tour level player it technically only takes a couple hours and then we've got a couple of years of reinforcing it and following up. But after that, you just kind of own it. I mean, Sam is a kid that in his first win in Innisbrook a couple of weeks ago is his final round. He hit it on the fat side of the pen, 14 out of the 18 uh, holes, I believe it was like just a perfect decade round. Yeah. I feel a little strange saying, yeah, that's a, a decade win since I haven't even talked to the dude in a year and a half but he played perfect decade golf and he's a guy that I taught how to play while he was, you know, coming up. So right now what's coming up for the next year and a half, like you're just gonna, I, I, you know, there's a lot of people on Twitter that don't like me and I understand why <laughs> I definitely come across a little bit abrasive there, whatever. But if you don't like me, it's just not going to be a very fun couple of years for you. Cause it's only going to get worse. I mean, all these <laughs> kids coming up in college, I mean, they all, they all are learning decade. And again, even like tour players, whether, whether they work with me directly or not, I've got guys like, you know, Mark Blackburn and Scott Hamilton and Jeff Smith, the biggest names on tour. And they all lean on me for, you know, strategy and statistics advice. I mean, this thing, it's, it feels like it's at its peak to me, but I also feel like it's just beginning. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And I feel like it'd be, I would, I would regret it if I didn't ask you one bonus question, Scott, before we go. I know we're at time, but I want to know, because Will Zalatoris, we talked about a lot of his mindset stuff after the Masters, and I think a lot of people can learn a lot from him because um, he's not a DJ guy, right? Everyone can relate to a Will Zalatoris frame and, and type of player um, just in regards to biomechanics and, and physical stature. But can you walk us through what you – worked with him on or what maybe if you guys talked before the masters or what his plan was you can you can go listen to it on our podcast i mean not to pump my podcast here yeah. but the hack it out golf podcast we literally had him on for an hour the week before the masters like that's what's comical to me about this like i'm not trying to hide anything like literally hey will let's have a conversation about what we're working on cool here's what we're working on and then the kid yeah. goes and finishes second it's it's funny because it seems like, well, it's got to be something to know. It's the exact same stuff every single week. And what's funny is you, you can see the evolution if you, if you get the decade up. I mean, literally month one is free. Go grab month one of Foundations for free. And in month one, there's an hour-long podcast that Will and I recorded on his couch at his apartment. Uh, it was actually the day Kobe Bryant died. So it was February, whatever, of 2020. Mm -hmm. So it was about a month before the pandemic started. It was, you know, three or four months before he really started going off. Here's what we're working on right now. Here's what we're thinking of strategically. And, and a lot of what we were talking about in that one is on par five, specifically getting his second shot past the hole a lot more often. It's really easy on par fives to be stuck between a three wood and a hybrid or a hybrid and a four iron and think, well, I'll just go with the shorter one. Well, yeah, we'll come up short, but we'll be right around the front edge. As opposed to like, no, get that thing up there as far as you can you'll accidentally miss hit some and they'll come up you know pin high the thing about a four iron that you know can't get there it can't get there <laughs> the hybrid is gonna get there um yeah it might be long but it's typically actually going to be in a much better spot again the entire range of possible outcomes the entire shot pattern is going to be a lot better shape than the four iron and so I do, I think it's hilarious just to go listen to the podcast that's from February of 2020 with Zal Torres. Here's an hour of what we're working on. That kid's about to go off like no one's ever gone off before. I mean, yes, you get guys like Matthew Wolf and Morikawa that jump out there and win and, and do amazing things. And I mean, you should say Morikawa attended my seminar in college also. Um, it's, it's, it's just amazing to watch that kid go from where he was to just top you know three straight top tens and majors 
to to i mean he's got the most top tens i believe on the pga tour this year he's not even a member like it's he's he's a a good kid he's a good dude and it's uh it's been a lot of fun to take it's been a lot of fun with him specifically because i watched him from the age of 12 to 17 just get beat up i mean he really really struggled um the putting was not good and and he just really really it, it was not a fun five years and to have been able to kind of walk in and just be like, hey, we can, you know, yeah, putting is not our strong suit. I get it. But once you actually realize how to play the game, it's not that it doesn't matter, but we can work around it. It's, it's really a paradox. He, he wasn't a good putter, so I want him putting sooner. Like, what? Yeah, just by hitting an extra two or three greens around means an extra two or three fewer eight to 12 foot par putts on average. You can't make enough birdies to offset that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just make a lot of pars and, and you clean up these scorecards that have like six birdies, two bogeys and a double. And now it's just five birdies and a bogey. Well, that's a better score. And then that's, again, it's just, it is fun. I mean, again, I, I literally named decade after a text Will sent to me after winning the Texas Am where he just said, you've given me 25 years of experience in five days. Um, that, wow. you know, once I realized I was going to try to make something out of this again, the the SMU head coach, Jason Enlow was the one that told me like, you've got something here. Like kids are idiots. They don't understand how to play the game. And at the time, DeChambeau is just a sophomore at SMU or junior, I guess, incoming junior. And he's like, Bryson plays way too aggressively. I think what you're teaching here is what he needs. So I literally created the seminar for SMU specifically to go teach this all to Bryson. And then he won the, you know, the NCAAs three months later and the US Amateur after that. So it, it really is just funny to, for a lot of people that don't know or haven't heard of Decade yet, to be able to connect the dots of Bryson and Zalatoris and McNeely, Doc Redman, the 2017 U.S. Amateur Champion, again Morikawa, his his coach Rick Sessinghouse does amazing work reinforcing mm-hmm. all of the the mindfulness and the you know just all of that. Rick does an amazing job. But at the end of the day, Colin sat through my seminar in college and and learned how to at a minimum reinforce what Rick was telling him. And then I really do believe quantifying it is the difference because of the non-uniformity of course design saying the middle of the green is a totally different deal on number 10 at pebble beach than it is on number 18 at st andrews and i think that that's that's really Mm. the the key difference in in the traditional playing lessons and and how decade teaches things well scott thank you so much uh if you guys want to follow him follow him at scott fawcett uh twitter decade underscore golf on instagram um get the app decade golf i've got it now so i'm going through it and the hack it out golf podcast i listened to a couple of those those are great as well scott thanks so much we'd love to have you back at some point this was great yeah congrats on all your success scott thanks guys i appreciate it thanks scott